coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. Intel's just patched a remote execution vulnerability that's been lurking in its chips for the past nine years. We've got the details, plus some handy tips on how to decide if you're affected. Then Dan does a deep dive into friend of the show, Tarsnap, and their awesome backup services. We talk about how he uses it, why, and discuss when does it make sense to use a third-party service versus rolling your own. Plus, we've got a few tips on some lightweight backup software that might just be a better fit than Bacula or some of the other things we've talked about. Then we've got your feedback, a rockin' roundup, and so much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Welcome to this week's episode of TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. This episode was streamed live on May 2nd, 2017, and is brought to you by our three excellent sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. My name is Wes, and joining me this week is our friend Dan. Yeah, that's right. He's the guy with the rack. He's got the Tetris lamp. It's everything we need in an awesome TechSnap hope. Welcome to the show, Dan. There's the rack. Ooh. There's the it's everything. Yes. That's why yes. we like you. No, actually, it's that's, it's that's also fun. your amazing ability to explain complicated topics to our fair I, viewers. I try. I've always like I've always liked teaching. Isn't it? I it's remember, a lot of, there's a lot of joy and gratification in teaching. I like that too. I, I was a, a TA. Is that a term used here? Yeah. A teacher's assistant at university, and I like that a lot. And I've just sort of basically continued with that ever since. Oh, that's great. Well, I'm, I sure appreciate your hard work doing it here on the TechSnap program. Is there anything new with you this week you'd like to chat about? Um, no, I don't think any new toys arrived. I know that I was playing around with um, some of these things. People should recognize those. Those are um, optics, basically. On this end, a uh, fiber optic cable plugs in, and then that end, you plug it into the switch or the, the neck. Um, I need to get some new new ones of these because the ones I got for the cards I just placed in do not work very well at all. They're Ooh. they're Mellanox Mellanox okay. Connect X twos, and while they do have support in FreeBSD eleven, you have to load a kernel module, oh, and, I see. and I don't think it's it's compiled by default, so you have to. If you get it compiled, yeah, right. Load it, and and then it works. But I haven't, um, I haven't pursued that because I'm busy with other stuff. Alan Alan Jude had told me that he uses those, and um, if he can do it for what he does, I can use it here. It's funny, yeah. That I mean, that just makes me think about like you know ZFS on Linux or other things. Like for a lot of people, that just having that module breakage or potential breakage that's enough to you know uh, this isn't the one for me I'll choose something choose something else so it'll be interesting to see you know how you operationalize that um, well generally if you just compile it on one on the, right. one box and then you can just copy it to the ones you need it and then anytime you upgrade it might break but then you can just compile it again and have it ready. Right. But I, I wonder if the old module would work in the new next version, but it's a new kernel. So maybe, I is don't it, know. That's um, a good question. I'm not sure if you ever done um, I haven't. Is it easy to run like your own personal FreeBSD package repo or similar? Yeah. I, I've been running one at home for, I guess, years now. Um, 
basically what you do is you get a list of the ports you need mm -hmm. and you can actually query that on the box. I forget what it actually is, package query something. And it gives you a list of all the ports, all the installed packages, which do not, which were not installed by something else. Oh, that's really handy. Yeah. So that's just a top level. Mm -hmm. And if you build those, you'll wind up with everything that's already installed on the box. Oh, okay. So I take that list and I feed that into Poudrier and I put the options that you need to compile with in another file. You can put, store that in a flat file um, because there's a default set of options that everything is compiled with by default. Right. But you can change those on a, on a port by port basis. And so, yeah, I build everything. I build for the 11 tree, the 10.3 tree because I've got 10.3 and 11 boxes. See. see, that sounds actually really nice. And every night, there's a cron job that does uh, uh, an SVN up of the ports tree. Mm. So any changes that have occurred in the past 24 hours get downloaded. And then uh, a script runs, which will rebuild anything um, that is changed overnight. Oh, that sounds and, awesome. And so it should be ready the next morning. So if a vuln is announced overnight and patched at the same time before I start that process <laughs> i can just upgrade in Done. the morning taking care of yep. that's yes. awesome yes huh. it's beautiful well speaking of vulnerabilities i guess uh, that brings us right into our first story of the day and uh, you, you may have heard about it already it's kind of late breaking news but uh, red alert intel has patched a remote execution hole that's been hidden in business and server chips since 2008 yikes yeah um I didn't know what to do with this when this first came out because, oh, my God, I have to read up on so much. But um, I've never used this feature. And people people think of remote management and they think of IPMI or they think maybe of a, a serial port or maybe – I know that j just yesterday, uh, Mark Felder had posted a blog post, put up a blog post – about converting your Dell iDRAC from using Java to using SSH. Oh, you know, I think so I saw that. That sounds interesting. It, it's very nice because you don't need Java. All you need is an SSH connection. So figuratively, well, I guess you could do it from your phone. Um, but all the commands to do everything you need in order to, say, mount a remote ISO or anything for mounting for installation, you can do that through SSH because everything is menu-driven. Like you go into a certain module and you say, okay, let's mount this, okay. Like those old-school Telnet menus that you'd see on firewalls or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So it's just like that. Oh, that and sounds beautiful. Rather than all the Java, the proprietary Java stuff is just... Uh, I, I want that to go away. I do too. Please. It's just horrible. It's horrible. Um. And I remember setting up a server at work using these very tool, this very tool that Mark, Mark configured. And that was mostly because we couldn't get the Java to work properly. It needed a certain version or it kept falling over. It just was not reliable. But SSH, SSH is just there and you just set SSH in there. It can be on an out-of-band um, network. So you've got your separate man network management and you just SSH into it. And you do your work there. Um, but yeah, what we're talking about here in Intel is, is 
very different to that. We're we're talking about IPMI and Java consoles, but this is altogether different. Um, I had to go and read up on it. The the main thing I took away from it is it's hardware-based management, and it does not depend upon the presence of an OS or locally installed management agent. So there's all these third-party tools that you can get to do this, but Intel said, you know, they saw this ages ago that this really should be done this way. So yeah, I was also reading, um, it was the the MJ, MJG59 post that you put in the channel earlier. Ah, yes, Matthew Garrett's blog. Yeah, that, that's a useful one. Yeah. He mentioned how to figure out if you're affected. And uh, I've never used this, so I know I'm not affected. But the lovely thing about this stuff is that the OS never even sees this traffic. So the, the, the hardware captures this traffic, and the OS is totally unaware it's there. It comes in on a special port, um, so it, it's completely OS independent. It doesn't matter what you're running on the box, and, and like we said, you don't need an OS on the box for this to work. So this is a, it's an incredibly useful tool, and I'm sure it's widely deployed in big groups. But ooh, so anyway, uh, the bug is in Intel's Active Management Technology (AMT). Standard Manageability, ISM, and Small Business Technology, SBT, firmware version 6 to 11.0. And according to Chipzilla, the security hole allows an unprivileged attacker to gain control of the manageability features provided by these products. So basically, if you can get to it through this, you own that machine. You can wipe that whole machine. You can install another OS on it. I don't know how easy it would be to gain control of what's in the box, like steal the contents of the box, but I don't see why not. If you can overwrite the disk from here and install the OS, you certainly should be able to read what's on it. And how, how is a... You, you can't even see this. The OS won't, won't detect this as right, far as yeah. I know. I mean, so it's a, it's a part of the management engine, which is a small microprocessor that's separate. Uh, and then this is a component of that. So yeah, right, like you you send it in there and the it just takes that traffic right from the NIC mm-hmm. that never gets delivered to the main mm-hmm. CPU at all. Um, some part of it is in the CPU and some part of it right, is like a on shared... a separate chip on the, mother, on the motherboard. So... Does that mean that it's only Intel motherboards or some motherboards come with this management chip already installed? Yes, I believe so. I think I think you get that, um, you know, as part of like licensing the the processor and the architecture from Intel and building the motherboard for them. Uh, I mean, it may depend. And I think that I think all the new ones, they have they have the ME on them. Uh, obviously, as seen from this article, not all of them have this technology enabled or, you know, I'm not sure if they ship different firmware versions or not, but I know like some of the, like the ME also contains um, some like TPM implementations and some of their other, you know, management or security features. Someone in the channel just mentioned it sounds like something a spy agency could use. <laughs> it's, it certainly does. And yeah, Architect, we know it's part of the, the Intel CPU, but it's also, there are features also provided by a separate chip. And 
this came out so recently that I haven't had a full chance to read all the way through it, but figured it was such big news and affects so many people. Like, it affects every Intel platform with AMT, ISM, and SBT from Nahalem. Is that how they say that chipset name? Nahalem in 2008 to KB Lake in 2017. So that's a, a period of nine years. All the chips produced over the past nine years have a remotely exploitable security hole. Yikes. So, if you've got this, what do you do? Well, if it's not installed, if you're not using it, it doesn't turn on, on automatically. So, unless you've turned it on, you should be safe. But, there's a, we're supplying an article, we're supplying a link to an article that shows you what to do. There are instructions to disable or uninstall LSM. Uh, make sure that AMT is disabled. And if it's your own computer, you should have nothing else to worry about. But if you're a Windows admin with untrusted users, you also want to disable or uninstall LSM. Um, it doesn't mean that every Intel system can be taken over by hackers because uh, most Intel systems, this is key, most Intel systems do not ship with this. So it's it's mostly very. I'm gonna guess it's mostly higher end chips. Most consumer grade systems will not have this in it. I'm positive. Yeah. Right. Now, yeah. Exactly. It's like it shouldn't. You know, it's it'll be more of a thing to be aware of for bigger organizations that have enabled this feature that are that are using it, and that hopefully then that will mean that they you know they have security staff or properly trained administrators who can get get the fixes for this, know that they are using it, and you know will know that they need to patch. Um, yeah, it is new system firmware, so yeah, it's a big deal. It's a serious update, right? And you're gonna, I think you're gonna have to use the system to upgrade the system, right? So, ooh, that's a problem of trust. This, 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 this is big. Um, I wonder if it. I mean, they, they've they've come they've they've come out and told us. They're they're going to release a patch. I don't think they have already. Have they? No, I don't think so. Or have they? I uh, I, you know, I think that it may be released now. I'm not 100% sure. If not, it will be released soon. Let's see here. I cannot, I have not found any details anywhere about, about an actual fix. But, so, if you're using this, chances are you know already that you're using it and you're probably having heart palpitations now. <laughs> Oh, so, yeah, here the register it, says uh, to get Intel's patch to close the hole, you'll have to pester your machine's manufacturer for a firmware update. Uh, so that's not, uh, that's so not what it, you want. It, it, it's not Intel-specific. It's hardware manufacturer-specific. That's even worse. Yeah, that is even worse. Boy. So... AMT requires a few things, a supported CPU, a supported chipset, supported network hardware, and the ME firmware to contain the AMT firmware. So merely having a vPro CPU and chipset isn't sufficient. Your system vendor also needs to have licensed AMT code under AMT code and under Linux if LSPC I doesn't show a communication controller with MEI or HECI in the description. AMT isn't running in your safe. If it does show an MEI controller, that still doesn't mean you're vulnerable. 
AMT may still not be provisioned. If you reboot, you should see a brief firmware splash mentioning the ME. Hitting Control-P at this point should get you into, men into a menu over which you can let disable AMT. Now, wouldn't it be horrible if this was available over Wi-Fi? Oh, man. That's, now you're it, just scaring me, Dan. It, it is available over uh, Wi-Fi. Of course. Well, I mean, you need AMT, to be able to remotely AMT, manage your laptops, right? Yeah, but AMT will only remotely only connect itself to networks. It's been explicitly told okay, about. Okay, see, that's nice. That's good. That's reasonable. Yep. Now, where things get more confusing is that once the OS is running, responsibility for Wi-Fi is switched from the ME to the OS, and it forwards packets to AMT. Oh. So it's not as transparent as... It doesn't sound so as you can join a wireless network, and then if people people then would be able to try to authenticate or or use this vulnerability even perhaps against your AMT now that you are on that network and packets can reach that that interface. Well, I'm not sure because it says here it says here quote I haven't been able to find good documentation on whether having AMT enabled for Wi-Fi networks results in the OS forwarding packets to AMT on all Wi-Fi networks or only ones that are explicitly configured. And basically we have zero information about the vuln other than it allows unauthenticated access to AMT. That's the only thing we know. And it, we don't even know if it affects all SMT setups or setups that are in small business mode or setups are in enterprise mode. If it's just enterprise mode, the individual end users will have basically zero chance of it affecting them because enterprise mode involves a bunch of effort to configure and nobody's going to do that for their home set. Well, he, does he know us? Some of us might have. I haven't done it here. No, I'm, I haven't done it either. I wonder, it may be, you know, there may be licensing and other things involved as well to be there, able to. There, there is, there is. Your system vendor also needs to have licensed the, licensed yeah, 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 the AMT okay. code. But I wonder if the end user need, needs a license as well. Yeah, that's a good question. Or if, you, or if so. you'd have the right motherboard and chips out, mm -hmm. then will it just work? So, hmm. it's, nobody needs to panic. Well, most people do not need what to panic. What if I'm already panicking, Dan? How do I, how do I calm down? In through the nose. Out through the mouth, out the white way, in through or in through the mouth, just something like that. Just breathe gently. But most Intel systems don't ship with AMT, and most Intel systems with AMT don't have it turned on. Right. So I think this is a small percentage of all the Intel boxes out there. I'm sure. I sure hope so. Um, I know some work we've talked about a little bit on the Linux Unplugged program is the the folks over at LibreBoot and and some people kind of associated with that project or interested in that project. Uh, they've done some work on and like I know like the company Purism, uh, they've done some work to to get processors where they have more control over this or can turn a fuse off when they when they've got it ordered from Intel. And then there's also this project here. Uh, called ME Cleaner, which is a tool that will attempt to remove any unnecessary partitions from the Intel ME firmware, trying to get it to a point where it's like what the minimum requires. I think right now it's like the minimum that's required to be able to boot successfully and operate the system. Because if you completely disable it or wipe it, it'll run for like 30 minutes and then the system just hard shuts off. Um, so there's some projects underway to try to get this so that, you know, it's it, it's running the minimum amount of code that you don't get to see on your system in this, you know, privileged mode. So it just shuts itself off after 30 minutes. That sounds like a timer. 
Yeah, it does. Uh, you know, I'm not. I don't. I've not played with trying to. Maybe. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. But yeah, it's interesting. So to let you boot, you know, the system works. So clearly, it's it's mostly working. So there may be an artificial limitation that they've imposed that if you do try to, you know, use your their CPUs without the management engine, then hey, no go. Hmm. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting work, and it just kind of underscores, you know, some of the some of the reasons people are interested in like Risk Five or other open architectures, architectures that we can verify. There's so much going on even in like very nice, you know, Intel CPUs, but there's like a lot of things that can go on. Here we have this separate, you know, coprocessor that that has privileges that could run outside of our ring, otherwise ring zero control. And it just kind of underscores, especially in today's age of, I mean, you know, if you, if it's there to be exploited, people are going to try to find it. So having, having something like this that hides behind your OS, I can see why it makes people uncomfortable. Do, do you know, do you, uh, Itanium, Mm, yeah, is that is that from the eighties or something? I, Itaniums or nineties like and two thousands? I know. Let's see. I, I recall something about that. Was that a risk based platform? I, I I remember hearing great stuff about this hardware platform that was coming out, and I think that may have been my first uh, exposure to, to risk based architecture. And I said, "Oh, this makes so much sense." Let's see here. It's a 64-bit Intel microprocessor, Intel Itanium. IA64 is what it was called. I'm not sure about its origins. Now, now I do like risk-based chips. I do like the fact that they're very simple, and I think it makes sense just to keep things very simple, easy to follow, and then just it's easy to make bigger instructions out of smaller instructions, and it's also simpler to make those chips, isn't it? I would imagine so, yeah. I mean, I'm not, obviously not. Uh, I'm not a chip maker yeah, either. Not at all. So it'd be interesting to hear more about that. So if anyone in the audience, you know, uh, if you're yes. an expert in that kind of thing, please do provide us feedback or good resources to learn about that kind of thing. But I do think it underscores, you know, obviously more eyes on things won't fix it. But when you do have these very privileged secret code bases that no one can audit but the manufacturer, it can cause some problems. Yeah. It, it it will be interesting to see how this gets fixed, and uh, if right. we I imagine hear that once those of any firmware exploits come out, that people will be yeah. doing you know binary diffs and trying to dissect what changed, and so hope, <laughs> hopefully we'll have some like some follow up on this. I would love to see that. Yeah, um, I sure hope this doesn't affect anyone directly. Yeah, me too, definitely. Um, it's interesting. I did see some reporting like that. It, I guess people had suspicions of this for quite some time. Um, or claimed that they had knowledge of this or foreknowledge. Um, so it's interesting that, that it's that it's being released. It'll be it'll be good to see the fallout and, and hopefully minimum fall and things get patched relatively quickly. Well, it was discovered and reported in March. Yeah, okay. Hmm. Well, good luck, folks. This is unfortunate. Yes, it is. If your organization or your operations uh, run into it, you should also give us feedback about that. I think it would be, be very interesting to hear about people who've had to do mitigations firsthand, how they rolled that out, that sort of thing. That sounds like great. Great stuff for the TechSnap program. Yep. Please let us know. I'd love to hear stories about this. Anything else you'd like to add on this one? Nope. Thank you. Okay, well, with that, let's turn it to our first sponsor this evening. That's our friends over at DigitalOcean. Ah, DigitalOcean, the fine purveyor of excellent, 
excellent VPSs. So if you're worried now, you're like, ah, oh, well, ooh, these, these, you know, running my own server, how many things am I going to have to patch? I don't want to, I don't want to deal with firmware. DigitalOcean is the place to go. There, for under, in under 55 seconds, you can get a brand new, shiny distribution of your choice VPS spun up. Super fast, great API. You can use our promo code SNAPOcean. Yeah, that's right. SNAPOcean, one word, all lowercase. That will get you started with a $10 credit onto your account. Then wait till, wait till I tell you prices. Yeah, they start at just $5 a month. Go on over to DigitalOcean, uh, digitalocean.com. Go on over to their pricing page. There, you'll find a very easy-to-use, awesome little thing that lays out all the options that you have. They've got both monthly and hourly prices. Those hourly prices, my friends, super reasonable. And look at some of the power you can get for such incredible rates, right? So, hey, 50 cents an hour, you get 32 gigs of memory, 12-core processor, 320 gigs of SSD disk, and a whopping 7 terabytes of transfer and that's not like bargain basement transfer. That's not like, oh, yeah, we had this little rinky-dink ISP come over, you know, uh, yeah, it's over radio and Wi-Fi and uh, latency's not great. No, DigitalOcean has 40 gigabit E right to their KVM hypervisors, premium stuff. Go check out their blogs or their Instagram or any other social media. You'll see their beautiful, top-notch, state-of-the-art data setters. They really take a lot of pride in what they're doing. And that also shows through their work with the community, right? They understand that DigitalOcean is a great place to run open-source software, to build your next blog or website or startup. Um, and, and they help this out by having an awesome community of people who use Linux, who use FreeBSD. They've got great FreeBSD support. Um, and because they use KVM, you can run, you know, if you, if you do a little bit of work, you can run pretty much anything that you want. To supplement that, they have an awesome selection of community guides, first-rate documentation. I hire real editors to take what the community has submitted and turn it into a cohesive, coherent, awesome place to go learn. So you're getting to the point where half the time you Google something and the first or the best link is going to be a DigitalOcean guide. That just shows that DigitalOcean really understands what people want, They've got a great API, an awesome website, a ton of community apps, official apps. It's really all there. So just use our promo code SNAPOcean. That'll get you started. And then write some feedback. Tell us here at the TechSnap program what you thought, how you liked it, and all the cool projects that you got to do on DigitalOcean. Thanks to our friends at DO for sponsoring the TechSnap program. All righty then. On to our next story of the evening. What do you have for us, Mr. Dan? Well... I'd like to talk about um, TarSnap. Now, most of you will have heard about TarSnap. Um, if you've listened to BSC Now, you know they're a sponsor there. Um, I know the author of TarSnap, Colin. He, he's been involved in the BSD community for a long time. He, he's a pretty clever guy. And he, he seems to know his stuff when it comes to security. Uh, I remember he, he gave a talk at BSD CAN, I think it might have been 20, 2005, 2006, about um, an Intel security item. And I was worried that this was the same thing, but no, I went back and checked. It was something totally separate. It was not related to this at all. So, and... I use TarSnap. Most of you know that I also use Bacula. And why do I use both? Because it's easy and I can. You rarely regret making additional backups. Yeah, I think rarely. that's a good principle right there. Rarely. The more backups you have, like if everything 
in this apartment was destroyed and my secondary backups over there were destroyed and all my servers everywhere were destroyed, I would still be able to get my backups back because I have my backup keys stored in in the cloud somewhere in, this, in a separate thing, not related to any of this stuff. Um, so all my important stuff like my code repos, um, possibly some SSH keys, all of that stuff is backed up in Tarsnap. And I'm really confident that nobody can read it unless they steal one of my keys. But if they can steal one of my keys, which is read only by root, then they're root and they can read anything on the box I'm on. Right, you're screwed anyway. I'm rooted. So basically... There are other third-party backup solutions where they will also um, encrypt your backup with their key so that should you happen to lose your key, you can still get their backups back. But that also means that someone else could get your backups as well. And Tarsnap is having none of that. If you lose your key, you can't get your backups back from Tarsnap. But that's both a good thing and a bad thing. Because it means nobody else is getting your backups either. Right. It means you can actually be sure, right? You're not in one of these like compromised positions where like, mm-hmm. well, I'd like to back this up, but could it be used to incriminate me in the future? Uh, you know, or will it it could it be possibly embarrassing if it fell into the wrong hands? You can you can sure. I mean if you trust the cryptography and you trust the code, which you have access to, then you know, that, that's a different level of trust than than having yeah. a shared key. You have access to the client cyber code. Right. Client side code. Yes, thank you. That's a good correction. Um now, what was it going to say? Uh, have you ever heard people um, talk about um, full, full disk encryption, Gelly, something like that? Yeah, you may totally. not have, may not use Gelly. Um, I've I've only played but, with it a little bit myself. I've used more familiar with Lux on the Linux side, but uh, yeah. I've set it up before. Well, I, I'm not I'm not mentioning it because of any particular um, encryption model or method. I'm mentioning it. Um, oh, the only thing I've used uh, um, encryption for is uh, swap partitions, but oh. I've stopped doing that because it's difficult to get a core dump. Uh, oh, I see. Uh, in a swap partition, so I stopped using sw- encrypted swaps. Um, the best argument for full disk encryption is RMAs. Oh yeah. Oh, that's a that's a really good point. Oh. And someone else someone else pointed that out to me. I said, "Oh, yeah." But then someone else said, "I never RMA. I just buy a new disk." <laughs> that's fair. You know, but the I mean, just kind of ubiquitous encryption is is nice for that. I mean, I'm just thinking right now about like my uh, my phone that I got a replacement pixel and I'm just about to send off the old one. I can't boot it, so I can't I you know, without damaging it, I don't know how to wipe the the drive inside, but it's already encrypted. So there we go. It, nobody can read anything. Nobody can unless read it. I anyway. have your passphrase. Yeah. yeah, which is great. And that, that's good. that's really nice. That's good. That is very good. And um, thankfully I think everything on there was backed up, right? So it's like it's a paired point. You have you need your encryption. You also need the backups because they can't I mean they can't help me recover that data. I mean they could give me a full and, disk image, I guess, but and Tarsnap keys are not passphrases. They're right. they're big they're big keys. They're, they're like with SSL real randomness size. in there. Yeah, yes, yes. 
Now, um, where you're talking about the keys. Yeah, I like the fact that when I take my phone in, I have to completely, they, they want me to, to do, they want me to. They don't do it themselves. They want me to do the full wipe before I give it oh, in to them. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. For, for, for an exchange or something. Say like it's a, on a warranty job or something. They, they want me to do the full factory wipe before they'll take it. That's fair enough. Yeah, I think so. Now, um, one of the things I wanted to, to talk about is I found this blog post this afternoon when I went looking to see if I'd written anything about um, Tarsnap before. I went looking for an old blog post of mine, and I'd written this back in 2015. And so basically, I know that I've been using Tarsnap for at least two years this month, at least two years. But it says here that I last used it in July 2010 because I, excuse me, I found the old Tarsnap registration confirmation. But I didn't pursue it because I, I thought I had too much data to back up. Because back then, um, I was storing, like I had about 10 terabytes of backup on disk. But I went, Went, di went and did this and did a, a big backup. And it turns out that I'm not actually storing 10 gigabytes of disk. Um, I looked at the records that have been around recently, and Tarsnap uses deduplication, and it does that on the client. So basically, it reads something from disk and says, it reads it from disk, it encrypts it, and it says, does that match any of the blocks that are already stored away there? And if it does, it doesn't send it. It just discards it and sends a token off and says this is already stored to me that's a huge win you know like it, it really shows the sophistication that's not that's where i where i see a lot of the the power and the uniqueness of tarsnap like it's not easy mm -hmm. to get to be able to do that to get the encryption right to keep the security and that's one of the things like impresses me a lot about colin is he's done you know he's done a lot of this research and proof of work and built something that works yep and um, for a very brief time, I worked for a backup company based in Florida. Oh, and interesting. They do a very similar approach. Um, uh, but they were doing it, I think, before Colin start, started Tarsnap, mm. because I worked for them in about 2007. And it was very interesting what, what they were doing. Um, but I did, I did the math. I've been backing up every day for two years. And the total amount of disk space I'm using for all of those backups is about 85 gig. I've hey. never deleted any of my backups. That's awesome. Not once. Wow. Um, I also did the math somewhere. Uh, I have it over here. It costs me about 75 cents a day. That seems so totally worth it. I'm storing about 87 <laughs> gig in total. And I'm increase I'm adding about one point six gig a month. Okay, yeah. So that that's how much I'm writing per month is about one point six gig. That's not how much it's growing by because a lot of that is duplicate. Right. But it's that really and, nice model of where you don't have to worry about that, right? You don't have to try to make sure that you're not backing up needless stuff. Like it's just taken care of. Yep. Um what it what is interesting about it is um Oh, where was it? When you do the backup, it's just like using tar. If you've used tar in this, it's very similar to tar. 
and there's not much involved in, in doing backup. Um, basically, you run tar, and the output from the job, it, even the output from the tar from the tar command, is very similar to what you get when you. Sorry, the output from the tar snap command is very similar to what you do if you're going to do a tar minus CV. Is very similar to that. Um, now. There, there's something that you said. What were you just talking about? You said something about just being able to do the backups and they just run. Oh, how do you pay for it? You pay for it in advance. Basically, you sign up, you put some money in your account, and then you can start backing up. And if you run out of money, uh, TarSnap will send you an email about seven days before you're going to run out of funds. And you don't really have to worry because at the end of that seven days, your backups don't disappear. You just can't do new backups. And then after some period of time, if you're still not putting any money in, then your backups go away. But they don't get automatically deleted. So you do have some leeway. I think there's actually a policy on the website, which I have not read recently. But he's not going to delete your data. He, he's very hesitant to, to delete old re- repos. Uh, right. Deleting but, your user's data is not like a great I, business plan usually. No. no Especially if you no, have a hope that they'll, that. you know, they probably just forgot to pay. It doesn't do that. But it is a nice so, model of, you know, pay for what you use, which, you know, there's a lot of a lot of our sponsors are like that as well. So it's like, hey, you need more, you pay for more, you, you're not needing enough, you don't have to like sign up for a giant bucket that the, you then will never use. Um. One example, just my repo, my source code repo is 15 gig. So just that is there's a there's a lot of stuff in there which is <laughs> I uh, bet so there's some binaries in there. Oh yeah, uh, um, like audio tapes and stuff like that that are related to conferences. So 15 gig, I've been backing that up daily for for two years. Wow. And so all the duplicated stuff, I know what I wanted to say. If you're dumping a big text file, any anything that you're backing up to disk, say from a database and you're doing a database dump, do not compress the results. Let TarSnap do the deduplication. We did, Colin and I did a little um, test here where I dumped the Freshports database and would back it up both compressed and uncompressed. And the uncompressed version wound up sending less data because what it does is when you dump the database, basically all the data winds up in the same place anyway. And it, stuff is often just appended to the end of the table. And so TarSnap sees that and says, oh, this hasn't been stored before. I'll send that back. But if it's, if it's compressed, it's random data, and it can't really tell that this has already been sent. So backup raw uncompressed files you'll wind up having less cost um and i did i did the math i did the math if i wanted to restore all 80 let's say 90 gig it would cost me about 90 90 divided by four it's 25 cents a gigabyte so let's say it would cost me four bucks four four bucks 25 cents a dollar uh, 100 divided by 4, 25 bucks. It cost me 25 bucks to restore all 90 gig, less than 24. So 
it's reasonable in price. It's basically transparent because you just set a cron job and let it run. So right now what I want to do is I want to run briefly through how I did this. So first thing, sign up for a TarSnap account. Get a good password. Save that password away in some nice password manager. Then you have to load up your TarSnap account. You can do that with a credit card, Bitcoin, or PayPal. Um, maybe you took PayPal away because I think today I only read about Bitcoin and Stripe. Or he uses, you can fund it. So after this, create a TarSnap key. Now, there, there's a TarSnap key dash dash key gen. And then you give it a key file name. I actually recommend doing this not on the server that you're backing up. Do this on a central place that you trust. Do this for all of your servers that you're doing this for, because there's nothing worse than forgetting to back up that key. If you start off with all your keys in a central place, secure that place, you're fine. A friend of mine lost his entire server. It was backed up in TarSnap, but he did not have a backup oh, of, his, no. of his TarSnap key. It was nowhere uh, to be found. He went through all the hard drives. Cool. He try, tried to find it from there. He could not locate the You're key You're killing on me, disk. Dan. Oh, my. Wow. That's horrible. Everything. Everything gone. That is a dark day. So I went and I looked. I have my dark snap keys backed up in my password manager. I have I not know. tested them. Yeah, I right. have not tested them, but I should. Yeah, that's some homework from today's show, Dan. Test your tar snap keys. Yes, yes. So, when you do the key gen, you will be prompted for your tar snap password. And that's just to make sure that you're a legit person putting stuff in your account. So, save your key. I've already said that. So, the first tar snap backup basically, you do tar snap, uh, excuse me, tar snap minus C, which is similar to the tar command, minus C for create a, a tarball, minus F. Minus F is the file that you want to put it into in tar. In tar snap, it's the name of the backup that you're creating. And I'll always do something of hostname.date and back it up that way. And then you give the path of what you want to back up. And then it goes, whips through it, remo removing leading slash from member names. That's a familiar thing. So I let that run overnight in a TMUX session. And I came back the next day. And I had a list here of total size, compressed size. And there wasn't much difference because these were all repos. Um, but actually, it did compress quite a bit. That 16 gig of data compressed down to 7.6 gig of data. More than 50%. So it was going to cost me four bucks a month to store this, but it's only two bucks a month because of the nice. compression. That, that is nice. Um, so it, it, he, he's compressing the data and he's also de duplicating it. And I know for a fact that there is overlap between the BSD CAN and the PGCon website repos because if you go to those websites, the websites look identical apart from having slight differences. But <laughs> I, I honestly did an SVN copy to get the PGCon website started. So yeah, there's a duplicate there. So then I did another backup. And this time what I wanted to backup was my Bacula configuration. 
And again, I created another key because this is a different host and it's going to be doing a different backup. And that backup ran almost immediately because it was only 470k and compressed. It's only 24k. There's a lot of there's a lot of um, plain text in a backlit configuration. So then I went and looked at the cost, the cost of the backup, not just of the storage. So just sending that data to the to the server cost me a dollar ninety, and then the daily storage was six cents, and the bandwidth of copying stuff back and forth was like a less than less than a penny. So. So far, if that's all ever backed up, it would be about twenty-two bucks a year, and that's that's not much at all. Twenty-two bucks for storing seventeen gig of data. Yeah, pretty reasonable, really. And the thing is, all of this stuff is is stored on Amazon S three. Right. Is that the right term? Yeah. And Simple these storage things, service. These things. That's what the three is for. I always forget yeah. that. This stuff can survive the destruction of two data centers, not the destruction of two drives or two racks, but two data centers. So you're in pretty pretty good hands there. It's kind of hard to destroy a data center. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Godzilla has tried. Barring some uh, unknown, unforeseeable global catastrophe, which in that point, yeah. maybe your data is not the first thing you're thinking of. No, <laughs> no. How are my friends and family? Am I alive? Yep. If anything, it, I think it's about as safe as you can get for storing data. So that now, kind of make, makes me think. So in the IRC room, uh, Houdat is is wondering, as we're talking here, why would we use this over other services, right? So like you could, yep. if you wanted to, just back up your files to yep. S3. There's like S3 sync, mm -hmm. I know, like sync folders. Mm -hmm. So what makes mm -hmm. you prefer Tarsnap or why do you think it's useful in an admin or just general computer user's tool belt? That's a good question. Well, you could just copy this stuff to S3 yourself if you wanted. You could just encrypt it and send it there, but Tarsnap's a lot easier. It's in a, it, it's basically a nice little service. Right, they've um, they've done the work for you. They they know a bit more about en encryption than I do. Um I don't know. Really, you could roll your own and send this stuff out and, and do it all entirely yourself. But I I couldn't be bothered doing that. Right. But perhaps you mean, why would you use this over another third party? Yeah, like Carbonite or, you know, drop putting it in your Dropbox or whatever. Didn't want to name anyone. <laughs> um, I'm not sure about... Dropbox. I would still do. I would still encrypt it before it, sure. before putting it on Dropbox. Um, what Tarsnap does is it definitely encrypts it before it leaves your server. Nothing leaves your server unencrypted, and at that point, nobody can read it. Um, the other thing is it's an open source client, so a lot of people have read it and they know exactly what it's doing, and people have paid very close attention to it. There is a bug bounty on the client. And many people have tried to get big bug bounties, and I think they're all public, the ones that have been paid out. But you know what the code's doing. It's been proven to do exactly what it's doing and nothing more. So there's no secret key being applied to your file. If you're using this, I have no inside knowledge of what other services are doing. But if you're using a 
binary provided by a third party backing up your data, how do you know that it's encrypted? Perhaps the stream that it's sending out on the TLS is encrypted, but how do you know that the data that it's, sended, that it's sending away is encrypted only with your data? How do you know that nobody else can unencrypt your data? With Tarsnap, you know that for a fact. Right. Maybe you're going to rely on other people, but people have looked at the code and it, it it's it's definitely not providing a backdoor in there. Some third-party providers will say, oh, you lost your key. Oh, okay, well, here's your data for you. So they definitely have a way of getting at your data. And if they have a way, someone else can use that same way. And if you're serious about security and data, you don't allow backdoors because that's what this other unnamed third party is doing when they give you your backup for which you've lost the key. Colin takes pride in saying, nope, you lost the key, sorry, your backup's gone, which is a good thing because, for example, if you have fully encrypted drives, one of the best way to get rid of them is to delete the key portion of the drive. I forget which part it is, but there's a part of the drive that you can just wipe away and those disks will be totally unreadable forever. Even if you have the key, that can't be right. Just destroy the key. No one can, can read those encrypted drives. Yeah. But same with Tarsnap. If you don't want anyone to get your backups, destroy the just key. Destroy no one ever key. will be able to get it. Yeah. Destroy your keys, stop easy, pain, and there you these go. These are not easy things to guess either. Right, yeah. So who that, did that sort of explain why I'm so passionate about Tarsnap's solution? And I think, I think the key so. to, about this too is like, I don't want to come off like we're trying to just shill for Tarsnap or anything. It's more just like, maybe maybe third-party services aren't part of your backup regimen, uh, but it can be an easy way to add another place, right? Like, you may only have the budget or other things to invest in enough, like co-located or at your friend's house, mm -hmm. you know, like remote places where you can actually have offsite backups. So something yep. like this, uh, if you're in the market for a paid service to do backups, Tarsnap seems like the cream of the crop. You know, it has something that, that you know, Unix nerds, an interface that we can get along with. And like, if you look at Colin's history, you know, he's done a lot of nice contributions to FreeBSD. He has other projects. We talked about SPipeD last week, I think. Um, so you can just tell that like, he's he's doing this for the right reasons. And it seems like a good, if I'm going to be spending money, it'd be nice to spend it on an yeah. operation that I would like to support. Um, do you know anything about duplicity? Because JDE is mentioning duplicity. They use a, a key as well, but is 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 their client open source? Do we know that that's the only key applied? Open source project. Yeah, let's see. So I don't. Th I think I it would be. I have you'd not have to used it. Set up yourself. I have not used it. I have no knowledge of it. Mm, duplicity? No, not the movie. Thank you. <laughs> What is it? Duplicity backs directories by producing encrypted tar format volumes and uploading them to a remote or local file server. Because Duplicity uses librsync, the incremental archives mm -hmm. are space efficient and only record mm -hmm. the parts of the files, blah, blah, mm -hmm. blah. So, uh, In theory, it could go to all of these things. Yep. Yeah. So you could totally roll your own with something like this. That, yep. Uh, yep. I see how this would work. Well, JD, the thing I say is that I don't have to worry about a Amazon S S3 or any of the other things. I can just... I've got enough things to do. I don't want to do more things. So... This is the main reason that I let 
tower snap take care of it. Right, and then, and like in so many areas, yeah, you know, it's always a, a, a trade off. If you have the time, energy, desire, or think you can do things, you know, you you have a specific need, then yeah, totally. I think duplicity is a great thing. It might be something worth we look us looking into more in the future. I know I've played with it just a little bit, um, but yeah, sometimes you do want, you know, it's like worth it enough that the small fee that you're that you pay is like, okay, well, I just ship this cron job off, and I know that if my house burns down and my friend's house burns down the same day, then I still have my data. Um, you can Google for a lot of stuff uh, comparing TerraSnap and Duplicity, but uh, be sure to read the comments on on the posts. There's, there's one in um, TerraSnap. Um, I also think perhaps the difference in cost. I don't. I don't know. Um, don't don't let the cost of TerraSnap put you off because the main, the most important thing I back up, I think, is my backlit configuration, and I figured out that. To store that 47K, is that what it was? 24? Yeah, 24K. To store that 24K, um, I could store it for almost 100 years and it would cost oh. me less than one cent. Right. There I don't you go. think I'd need it. I don't think I'd need it that long. Um, but. Right. It and would so be that's useful. like, that's where it also comes back to, you know, it's like, especially for those kind of things, right? Like, uh, you know, very valuable configs, keys, uh, backups for your you know, for two-factor thing, anything like those, you know, people might already be encrypting them and putting it on Google Drive or other places. Yeah. This is just another way you can, you know, make it done really easily. And here, rather than using a free service, um, you know, you at least have a business relationship. So you can have some more guarantees that it's in their interest to keep your data secure and that they he can't go pilfering. Yeah. Um, I don't have to worry about my S3 account. <laughs> That's also true. Is, is, the re- is the reason I say that. TarSnap is more fun than the <laughs> AWS console or API. I'm willing yes. to stand by that. <laughs> yes. Have you used it? Yes. I, I only have a little bit of stuff in TarSnap right now where it's it's pretty much what you were talking about. Like, you know, it's just like a couple keys and a few other things. Oh. I, I don't I, I don't think I've ever used the Amazon AWS. I know I've used Amazon, uh, sorry, Microsoft Azure. Azure, yeah. And I've used DigitalOcean, mm-hmm. but since I originally created the the droplet on DigitalOcean, I've never been back to the UI. You don't need to. That's it's uh, it works nicely like that. It, it's been running a mail server for a friend of mine for I guess a year and a half now. Huh. Just just churning I've, away. I've never seen an outage. That's awesome. Anything like that? That's it's, great. It's a nice little solution. And I'm tempted to create another one because um, that server that crashed overnight, yeah. it had w- one of my external Nagios m- monitoring systems on it. It's no big deal. I so have it all a... enhanceable and backed up. Right. So, How did you get a notification? Is, do you have like a Nagios monitoring, uh, uh, a Nagios, like an infinite loop uh, thing? I, I, no- <laughs> I noticed that I couldn't get to my external <laughs> Nagios <laughs> yeah, this right, morning. There you go. And the, the, there, there, there was a monitor. There is a monitor on it. Um, that would be funny, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, I do have Nagios monitoring Nagios, and one of the things I've wanted to do is to have a monitor on Nagios to tell me that Nagios is not running, because the website can still work. Yeah, the website does still work, and you and you can miss that, and you're like, oh, and but say, no checks are happening. Well, why is this not working? What, what's going on? Why is everything out of date? Yes, I have totally been there and been very frustrated. Yeah. But yeah, I do have to add a monitor here at home mm-hmm. for the remote one. 
I'll just set up another one. I just I just wanted one uh, to get the external one running, right. um, because I, I had a Nagus configuration that was this big, and I wanted to get to there, <laughs> and I didn't want to buy a third party VM. Right. Because I may just be able to work on this for an hour tonight and not get back to it for a month. So he's 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 spun up a, a VM for me and let me use it. Oh, beautiful! That's very nice. It was. It was very good. Anyway, we may have done this to death for the time being. That's probably. Can true. you think of some? Can you think of something else that you would like to ask? Does the audience have any more questions yeah, about Tarsnap? Yeah, anyone over in the IRC room who has uh, would like to ask something. Um, but. Uh, I run these as, as cron jobs on route. Um, the email comes back to me on a daily basis. I toss all those emails into one um, mailbox, which I never, ever look at. In fact, today, when I went to look at it to grab out a, a sample email, I couldn't remember what did I name it. And it's actually named Tarsnaps, underscore Tarsnaps. So it sits at the, at the top of the list. And there are 2,729 unread emails in that list, in that box. Um, there's actually 3,200 in it. And let's go down to the bottom and see how, how, long, how long have I been running this. May 17th, 2015 is the oldest one in there. So, yeah, I like it. I use it for backing up a whole bunch of crap. Stuff that I really don't want to do without. Yeah, right. And so that made me think, like, when you're talking about your Nagios, you know, I think it's always, it comes back to, like, that trade-off of what do you pay for versus what do you build yourself, especially if you're a competent admin mm -hmm. or, you know, Unix guy. And so, like, I've seen a lot of places that, you know, they have their own monitoring stack that they've built, Nagios, other things. And at the edges, they'll often still, like, pay some third party just, you know, just to run, like, basic HTTP gets against their stuff, just as that, like, you know, you can have a little bit of insurance mm -hmm. that, like, some other person mm -hmm. not connected to you is yes. also doing this. And that seems like Tarsnap's the same thing. Like, and if you're not yeah. comfortable or you just want a little more security... Hey, maybe it's for you. Well, like I said, I could mess up with my own backups, right. but hopefully that's a that's a place of last resort. Um, what you said about third parties—that is why I have an external monitoring thing. Yeah, totally. Because if my network at home goes down or this goes down, at least I still have something out there that's monitoring the websites that other <laughs> yes. people use. Totally. You don't want one cable cut to uh, cause you a complete blackout. Yeah, because sometimes my websites go offline and not necessarily because of something I did, but <laughs> yes. say someone else in the data center is getting DDoS and I'm victim uh, of it. Yeah, you're, you're on their yeah. switch too or whatever. Yeah. 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 Interesting. So at least people, at least then I can find out what's going on when someone says, hey, Dan, fresh ports is kind of slow. What's going on? <laughs> I said, oh, someone's indexing all the searches. That's pretty funny. All right, well, anything else you'd like to add uh, about Tarsnap? Uh, no, if anyone's going to go and use it and try it, keep, keep an eye on uh, on the, the uh, statistics page on, on Tarsnap, and it gives you a very good list of how much data you're backing up, and you get a very quick idea of how much... Uh, um, how, how long your money's going to last. But nice. if you're only backing up a little bit, it should last a long time. 10 bucks will go a long way if all you're backing up is Nagio's configuration files. And we'd love to hear about, you know, if you are using Tarsnap or, you know, if you're like our, our chat room, JDE, similar, uh, you know, you're using something else, duplicity, other services, other open yes. source solutions. Like if you have solutions that work for you, we would love to hear about them, talk about them here on the show. So please write into us and let us know. Um, 
I think yes, that, that that brings us, you know, if you're concerned about storage, you you know, you, you're concerned about your data, you take backups seriously, you take your operations seriously enough to consider using Tarsnap, well, then don't just buy your server from any old vendor. Go on over to IX Systems. Come on. There you will find an awesome team of super talented sales engineers. Emphasis on the engineer who are ready to set you up with the hardware of your dreams. IX Systems is like no other hardware provider in the business. They partner with their suppliers, people like Intel, who sell awesome Intel processors, amazingly powerful, state-of-the-art. They've got these great relationships to make sure that you get the hardware that you need. And they just look, take a look on their website. You'll see some of their great sponsors, Sony, VMware, Adobe, Mozilla, Sega. These are the customers that they work with all the time, right? They make sure that people doing big data, big research, serious computations, serious analysis, that's their bread and butter. At the same time, they take that care, that attention to detail, that engineering knowledge, and they apply it to every machine that they build. They understand that, you know, whatever you need, you know, whether it's a new database server or just a backup machine for your house or your small office, it's important to you. It deserves to be custom and it deserves to have love, care, and attention put into it. And that is where IX Systems separates themselves from the rest of the pack in their industry. They make sure that you get, you know, the attention you need. You get guidance to help make sure that, you know, all right, well, you don't know if you need this kind of SAS controller or how are you going to get the tape drive to work? Will that be able to fit in this machine or is the interface compatible? Does this motherboard you with this chassis, are they compatible? Will I get the, you know, I might have the right graphics coprocessor on this chip? All of those questions where you're like, I just don't know. This is what I, this isn't what I do. I need to, I just need it to be a server so that I can start running the code that I write or whatever. That's where IX Systems is, wants to be a partner to help your business succeed, just like you're helping their business succeed. And so you can grow into this, you know, this real relationship. You're not, you're not talking to some faceless company or going to a website where you're just clicking through and you hope that the thing that you ordered is going to be the thing that comes and meets your needs. IX Systems is so much more than that. Plus, they have an awesome reputation in the open source community. They do the open, they are responsible for the FreeNAS project. They also work on TrueOS, which is an awesome FreeBSD operating system derived distribution, however you want to call it. Uh, go check that out. Plus, they've done a ton of work working with the OpenZFS community. So you can tell that like they understand enterprise needs, they understand small customers' needs, and they understand open source needs. So if you go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap, there you'll find their great guide to buying hardware for open source software. This is a great guide if you're, you know, if you're looking to buy new hardware or Hey, if you have an ear in with the with the person responsible at your organization for procuring new hardware, iX System is an awesome vendor you can add to the list. You know, I've had some problems with with some un, we'll just we'll just not mention their names, but some of the bigger suppliers where hey, they you know they shipped you a lemon. Sure, they replaced the motherboard, they replaced this or that, and the, but the machine just won't work. And it's like you know, it's it pulling pulling teeth to try to get them to do this. You will never have an experience like that with iX Systems. They just don't work that way. They're really in it to help you and to make sure you get the best server you can get. So go over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. That'll let you know that you they appreciate you appreciate them sponsoring us. Plus, hey, if you got a little downtime, head on over to their blog. They always have awesome new updates, right? So like they're they're always working to get better support with VMware, with other with other big companies. Plus, they have some really nice articles if you're thinking about becoming a, becoming a um, customer, like what I wish everyone knew about IX Systems white glove support. Go there, check out that article. You'll learn more about why we think IX Systems is just so awesome. So thank you to IX for sponsoring this here TechSnap program. And that brings us to the feedback segment, the section of the show where we take time out and field questions 
responses, criticisms, comments, really anything from our awesome fans. That's you guys. So let's see what we have in today's mailbag. First up, over on the TechSnap subreddit, that's techsnap.reddit.com, looks like we've got something in from Sensor Smile. Something like that. And he's asking, he's curious about Wes's take on this fork of bacula called Barrios. Uh, so I had heard of it. It had been brought up a couple times before. I did a little bit of of research into, you know, we talk, we've talked about Bacula. Dan's done some of his patented awesome deep dives on it. So let's go check out Barrios. So what is it? It's it's a 100% open source fork of the Bacheck backup project Bacula. This fork has been in development since 2010 and has so they say, a lot of new features. If you head on over to their FAQ, you'll see that they've answered some of the questions that, you know, if you're listening to this, you may have things like, hey, why have you started a fork from Bacula? Um, so uh, it looks like some of the reasons that they've listed here is, you know, they didn't, they didn't like how the project leadership was going. They say that there was patches that were ignored, uh, had some issues about the Bacula Enterprise things. So it seems like they just had you know, had their own vision for how things should go, how things should be developed. One of the benefits of open source, right, is that we do have this opportunity to fork things, uh, to make things our own if we need it. Obviously, then you're responsible for for maintaining it. Uh, they have a couple other comments here, you know, like, hey, are the are the Barrios daemons compatible with Bacula daemons? It looks like at one point that was true. Uh, it's no longer, they've no longer tested it in recent times. And it looked like it also at one point you could migrate from, uh, from Bacula to Barrios. I don't know if you're starting today how true that is or how well that would work. Um, I imagine there would be other solutions you could look into. Uh, they also talk about, hey, are there any new features here? This is also pretty old, but they it sounds like when it was launched, yes, like one of their one of their key focuses um, was taking patches that had been rejected from Bacula uh, and adding them to this project. So it does sound like there's some differences in development. I don't have enough personal experience to say, you know, were those patches good or bad. There can be there can be good patches that don't make sense in a project for a variety of reasons. I don't necessarily have that much uh, that much history to be able to say. I did do some some cursory searching around. There are some people on the internet with opinions. Hey, who knew? Uh, so one place you can go check out is over on the Linux admin subreddit. Um, they kind of have some discussion here about, you know, hey, uh, this was from about two months ago talking about can anyone point me in a direction where I could understand pros, cons of Baculus versus Barrios or provide personal experience? So there's there's some people here talking about backup PCs, some other backup solutions that you might like. Um, be interesting to see what people think of this thread. And then there's a couple of people here talking about, you know, some of the features that they like uh, for Barrios versus Bacula. Um, one of the ones that st- stood out to me here was uh, one of the, one of the selling, selling points for Barrios is the web interface. I know Bacula has its own web interface, but it isn't the same. As far as I know, you can't really do anything with Bacula web. On the other hand, the Barrios web UI, you can run backups and restores. Another big win, in my opinion, was the better official documentation Barrios had. This may not be an issue if you know what you're doing, but if you're starting from scratch, this is a huge advantage. I don't know how current these things are, but that might be a place where you can go see, you know, see people who've tried both systems, go figure out which one is for me. So I'll throw these in the in the show notes as well and so people can take a look and make up their minds. I'd love to hear from some of our audience. Maybe people have uh, experience with both these systems or have made a choice and have their rationale. So now, Dad, I'm sure you've been waiting in the wings. Do you have any thoughts? I don't use barriers. <laughs> but I have heard that you have... do use something called Bacula? Yeah, I use Bacula. Um... And I tend not to help the people that come onto the backend mailing lists or onto the 
bank of IRC channels asking for help with Barrios either. <laughs> well, I mean, that seems fair. They they could have their own mailing list. Yes, yes, they do. Yeah, they do. Right. There you go. But they they ask they ask us for help. I don't know why. <laughs> they ask us for. Help. I suppose sometimes when you want help, you're uh, willing to ask just about anyone who you think might listen. Now, all, all it, there is bad blood between the two projects when they forked yeah. because basically they it. It was sort of done not nicely, and um, uh, names were removed from copyright files and Ooh. stuff like that. Um, I think that all got sorted out eventually, but a lot of the a lot of the developers on Bacula were not happy about the Barrios fork. They're fine with the Bacula project, but. Good luck to them, and stuff that they're doing, Bacula can use as well, and stuff is migrating between both projects, I believe. Nice. See that? So that's good. So they they, they yeah. can both be healthy. They can both be working on these things. Maybe maybe hopefully even trading patches when appropriate. Awesome. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Um, that's great. Well, I'll, I'll be curious I, to see. I'm if, biased. I'm yeah. biased. <laughs> right, but you're admitting that. Um, yes. Yeah, so uh, you know, I might I might look into it a little bit more, but definitely, audience, I'd be curious to hear what you guys think. If anyone has experience with both, if anyone has any more, you know, anything else they'd like to add to this discussion, it sounds like it sounds like we're in a good position where both projects are doing well uh, and both you know do work properly. And hey, it's better to have more backup solutions than less. I think. Yes, I agree. Awesome. Okay. Well, with that, then uh, let's head on over to the next mailbag item. We've got a question. About a low-end backup solution. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they write, I would like to thank you for continuing TechSnap. Hey, hey, we're happy to do that. Uh, while I was a little worried after your first and second episodes, you totally rock now, and TechSnap is exactly what I expect from a tech show. Oh, well, thank you. That, uh, that makes us very happy, I'm sure. Um, thank you. We're very happy that you guys are joining us, and we're having a lot of fun. It continues. I have a little file server based on this machine. Let's see. Looks like there's a And it's picture pretty. There. Ah, it, hey. it, it is pretty. Look, look at this. Yeah, got some power supplies. Some those raspberry like pies the ra- in there. He has a little the little rack. Yeah. He's got two in there. I wonder what he's got two for. Because do you know what that little um, box in the corner with the uh, Ethernet cable going into it? That looks exactly like this thing in the corner of the rack here. Oh, there we go. Switched it to you. This thing here. Oh, it does look like that. Yeah. It's like that. That is a Atlas Write probe from, as in write.net. There's a lot of DNS um, queries. Oh, right. I remember us talking about that very briefly. So in one photograph here, it looks rectangular. Mine is definitely a square one, but I think they're both TP-Link boxes. I'm not sure. Yep, mine's a TP-Link as yeah, well. Yeah, this one's TP-Link. His oh. box looks rectangular and it looks like it has two, um, two, um, 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 oh, it almost looks like a, a switch. Yeah, it looks like it, it has four nicks on it. Interesting. Okay. So he's anyway. got a little switch in the box. There's some more stuff. All right, back to the yep. question. So I've got one of those passport CD uh, drives here. That's ah. his one terabyte drive. All right, let's see. So he's got this little file server. <clears throat> it's just a Raspberry Pi with a terabyte spinning disk. There's what you were just talking about. I'm using Samba, and it's working great, delivering music and movies to all my computers and a phone. 
I am a little worried about that disc, and my backups are bad right now because I'm just copying everything to another disc every month. Data's not changing that much, but sometimes I'm adding new music or fixing tags of MP3s. Is there a simple backup solution that can do incremental, or at least could give me a nice list of files changed from last full backup? Is Bacula an overkill for a task like this? I'm close, into, I'm close to just writing my own bash scripts, but the lazy, lazy part of me wanted to ask you guys. Thanks, Lucas. Thank you very much for writing to us, Lucas. That's a great question. Thank you also. That's, uh, it's always fun when people send in send in pictures, other things. We're going to get like a better idea of just what's happening. gives us a little, you know, you could get windows into our lives, and we, hey, we get windows into your lives. It's pretty cool. What do you think, Dan? Is two, two little raspberry pies here. Um, well, first, he's been li- listening. He was worried about our first and second episodes. So, so was I. I was very nervous. Yes, it's it should m- also be noted that we did that in one day, so it was really like yes. the first episode. First and second episodes over. were in the same day. The first episode was at lunchtime. The second episode was about this time of day. That was a hell of a day. Yes, yes, it was. Um, I'd forgotten that they were both mm-hmm. in the same day. <laughs> um, so now he's just copying stuff over manually. I think I think that's what he's saying in the third third paragraph there, just because I'm copying everything over. So it sounds like he's doing it manually. Bacula overkill, I would say so. Um, your own bash scripts. No, don't write your own bash scripts. Run shell scripts. Bin slash sh, but maybe that is bash on his box. Yeah, right, probably. Um, I would use rsync. What do you think? rsync from from one drive to the other. Yeah, you know, I I think rsync would work reasonably well. I've seen some other ones that I've like I've tried a little bit in the past. Like one of them is well, I think originally it was Attic, um, and then a fork of it appeared called Borg. Um, So I think there's a couple options like that Borg, uh, and maybe even you know we were talking about duplicity earlier. That might be something. Because it sounds like for for this case, you don't need, you know, like a lot of where the power of Baculux seemed to come from, you know, it it had these, you know, different daemons, almost like a, you know, like a service-oriented architecture where you could kind of reposition things. It made it very flexible, but maybe also, you know, requires a little bit more setup than you want. Whereas here, it seems like there's enough kind of tools, um, you know, rsync or r, what is it, like r snapshot, rdiff backup. Yeah, and his backup is just one copy as well. Right. If he's copying just to one other drive, it's only one. It's only, it's one. only one copy. It's yeah. not like you've got multiple. Yeah. So, so I think here, so it just depends on, you know, like how much do you want like a series, you know, of, of linked snapshots that let you assemble back the data, like true incremental style, or do you just want something, you know, like rsync where you could, you know, you just transfer it and then you have incremental just on the sending part. Um, how, how much do you want that? Is just one set of your data enough? Um, but I would say, yeah, look into duplicity, look into Borg, um, our snapshot, a couple other ones, you know, there's like a lot of them that are just kind of like thin wrappers around rsync or SSH or other things where you can get some of those, some of those features, but you don't have to set up a whole bunch of other servers or run a bunch of daemons places. Um, yeah, so, something very simple, not, not very complex. Um, that's what he's asking for, but rsync. Maybe what you want, but then you still only just got one copy of everything you want. What was the thing that used to do multiple rsync net? Was that was that the one that used to do symlinks and hard links and stuff in a directory just to keep everything 
Oh yeah, that does sound familiar. Or I remember a tool like that. Um, one thing I note about his setup. If you note it, oh okay, I see. Um, it's European. I was gonna say I really like his um, um, extent his power strip because everything is angled. Yeah, that is nice. I have seen a couple you can buy for the U.S. market that have like um have those, but yeah. where they rotate. So yeah, and it's definitely European. If you look at the extension cord, the plug on the end of the extension cord is a two-pin plug. Oh yeah, look at that. So it is. Nice. Okay, yeah, uh, and we can throw some of those things. Um, you know, we talked about Duplicity Borg, uh, RDF Backup, our snapshot as options. And hey, this is another aspect of the feedback segment where hey, we get to chime in. And now it's your turn, audience. You can write back in, you know, let us know if you have a better answer. If you have some of these more minimalist backup tools that you like, mm-hmm. that you use every day, we'd love to hear from you. I, I want to know what the two and the three on the Ethernet ports mean. Oh, yeah, see, now there's did he have a, did have a Did he have a first one? Uh, that's a very good question. Okay, let's see. Looks like we've got one final feedback item for the day, unless you had something else to add. No, this is a very cool box. Thank yeah, you for the Yeah, it is very cool. I'm having a lot of fun looking through the photographs, checking it out. It's awesome to get to see this, you know, just an example of the stuff you're working on. Okay. Thank you. Yes, thank, thank you, you for very sending much. those in. Alrighty. On to our final feedback item today from Andrew. He has a question about mixing hard drive batches in a RAID setup. A listener asked about mitigating data loss by drive failures, RAID Z1 versus RAID Z2. I use mirrors in my server, and I try to mitigate issues of failing drives by mixing the drive batches. Each time I add a new mirror pair to the pool, I mix the manufacturing batch and ages around. The hope is if two drives will fail, they're most likely to be related, same age or batch. (laughs) Then he adds, the best laid plans never survive contact with Murphy's Law. Andrew, username Heath3827, listener since episode 86. Hey, that's awesome, Andrew. We're sure glad you stuck around, that you're continuing to join us here for the TechSnap program. What do you think about this, Dan? Is this something you consider in your builds? Um, well, first I want to point out that he's been listening since November 29th, 2012. Awesome. Which is 1,615 days or roughly 237 episodes. That's, That's super a lot. cool. Yeah, it is. That's a lot. So, um, I've heard this before. I've heard this a lot. You, you see it mentioned time and time again on um, various channels, but I've never done it. I've, I need five drives, so I buy five drives and I put them all in. Um, I've never, if they're all in the same batch, they're all in the same batch. I've, I've never made an effort to do this. Um, I guess you could buy a drive from one man, one reseller and another drive from another reseller and hope that they don't match up. But I don't usually do mirror pairs. I usually do RAID Z2s or 3s. So I don't fall into the same use cases he does. But I asked in the channel, um, the uh, Alan basically says he buys his boxes from IX Systems who do a burn-in of three days so the duds disappear by then so yeah if you do if you do your burn-in i guess it's less of a problem but just for home use and doing stuff like that you've got the time and you can do that but i don't i don't see anything wrong with it right but i did see some people noting that you do you you are doing that you want to make sure and you probably already are but like make sure that you get dry especially if you 
you know, it depends on what the purpose of the system. If it's just like a c- occasional access system, then it probably matters less. But if you're having something that needs like, you know, you have latency or throughput requirements, then you want to make sure that you get drives with similar performance characteristics so that you don't have, you know, like weird spikes where you're accessing data on one disk or things like that. Alan pointed out that I said RAID Z2. <laughs> Not RAID Z2. You've been corrupted, my friend. Damn. <laughs> but I still say, what do you call the glass in front of you when you're driving? In windshield? the car? Windscreen? Yeah. Something like that? Which one do you Which one do you say? I would say windshield. I say windscreen all the time. Okay, interesting. I guess I've heard it like I said it there, but I don't think I've yeah. ever said it in day-to-day conversation. That That's probably the one word that... I've I've retained from living in different places. Very few of the other ones. Like every once in a while, I come up with with some sort of a phrase. People, are like, what the hell was that? What did you just say? <laughs> yes. It's always weird. Uh, then you have to like try to explain it, and you're like, I, I don't. I didn't make up yep. the phrase. This is just yep. something we all say, except yep. for you. Now, as pointed out by JD, you have to be careful with mix and match. Um, in terms of even a tiny difference in drive sizes could cause cause problems, but that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about drives from different manufacturers. He's talking about drives purchased from different locations, different times, the same model. But even then, sometimes they do vary. Um, but the way I get around that when using ZFS is I create a partition on the drive and leave maybe a few meg at the end unused on every drive that I use. So they're not all exactly maxed out. And that gives me that little bit of leeway. So that even if there's, you know, a meg difference between two drives, which is a huge difference. If you if you get if you have a um, a five terabyte drive, them varying in size by a, a meg should should be a lot. But even at a five terabyte size, missing a gigabyte you're not going to miss that gig. Right, yeah. So no. you could even even leave a gig spare, and they're not going to differ by a gig. So yeah, that that that's the way I avoid the drives in and out. J- JD says they might be plus or minus a sector. Yeah, okay. But not a few meg. Right. I would also say that this might be a concern. Like, It seems like this should only be a concern if this is your sole backup, uh, yeah. or if you have stringent availability requirements. I'm sure the big manufacturers are not doing this. Yeah. Right, no, probably not. And so this seems like, you know, if it's something that you can easily do and you feel comfortable doing it, sure, do it. I I wouldn't, for my home system, if I had backups of the the data that I cared about, I probably wouldn't go to the trouble personally. But, hey, I think go for it. Anything you'd like to add there, Mr. Dan? Generally, when you're looking for hard drives, you can find bad opinions about any one brand or model. So just pick the ones that you think are going to go well and use them. Um, that That's what I do. Because if you only look for the bad reviews of drives, you're going to find them because everyone has drive failures. Let's just hope it's not you. Right, but it's a lot harder to find like statistically meaningful samples of drive failures. Yep. Even Backblaze sometimes is... Is questionable. Those are huge numbers. Those are huge numbers. Yeah, exactly. 
Okay, well, I think then that will wrap up the feedback feedback segment, and that brings us to our final sponsor of the day. That's our friends over at Ting. Go on over to techsnip.ting.com. There you'll find a company that's on a mission to make mobile make sense. Yeah, you might not even know that mobile didn't make sense. It doesn't. It makes no sense. It's crazy. There's contracts. There's early termination fees. There's these like weird plans that you have to sign up for in advance and try to somehow predict your exact use case, or you'll just know that you're underutilizing or pay horrible overage charges with Ting. No, 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 my friends. There's no overage charges. There's no early termination fees, and there's no contracts. It just starts at $6 a month. Yeah, that's right. One line, $6 a month. Then you just pay for what you use, your minutes, your messages, or your megabytes. Combine them all together. Go on over to their rates page. There you'll see just what I'm talking about. They got this awesome rates table. Kind of click like, what do you need? You got a family of three. Hey, you like to talk. But who sends text messages? It's 2017. Had some data in there. And they just show you right there, monthly total. That's less than $20 a line. That's impossible to beat pretty much anywhere else. How are you going to do that? And it comes with all the extras you come to expect, right? There's no extra fee for tethering. There's no lower magic tethering allowance balance. Now, Ting understands you're an adult. You want to tether, you want to use data, go for it. That's your data. You pay for it. You pay for just what you use. By going to techsnap.ting.com, that'll get you a $25 service credit. So you'll see right there, even if even with your family of three with a you know a pretty significant usage, that pays for almost half your first month bill. So there's really at $6 a month with the service credit. There's really no reason not to go to techsnap.ting.com today. Go check it out. Get started playing with it. It's a perfect device. They have both GSM and CDMA. For $6 a month, it's really easy to have a backup phone that you just leave in the truck or, you know, like a, a real cheap cheapo phone that you just want to bring when you go hiking or other places, but you don't want to break your main phone. Or one of my most favorite use cases is you want to, you know, you want to set it up to a, like an LTE modem or a hotspot device, keep it in your house, have like a remote access in case your main internet provider goes down. Super useful for that. And since you don't, if you're not using any data, you just pay for what you use. It's $6 a month. I mean, plus taxes and fees. They can't do anything about that. They would have, they could. I'm sure they're very good people over there, but they can't. So that's just going to happen. Plus, you know, you can bring your own device. If you don't have a device, go on over to their shop. They've got a ton of awesome phones. You can buy their SIM cards from just $9. And if you wait and you watch, sometimes they have SIM card sales. Just go buy a bunch. It's totally worth it. Uh, you can see they've got a lot of great phones here. They can clearly tell that people people are using them for things. Look at this Alcatel One Touch Fling. $20. Get it right there. Start using Ting. It's awesome. So if you're interested, and you should be, go on over to techsnap.ting.com. Get started with the mobile service provider that makes mobile make sense. They're in there for you, right? They don't, they're not working on new lines. Their value add is customer service. They've got a great app. They've got first rate real humans you can call or just go over to techsnap.ting.com. With that, that wraps up today's feedback segment. You can head over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. There you will find the form where you can submit feedback to us. You can also head on over to the subreddit at techsnap.reddit.com or you can find both of us on Twitter. And that brings us to the final segment of today's show. That's right. It's everyone's favorite. It's the Roundup, the segment of the show where we just didn't have enough time to cover these stories in the detail that we'd like to on the TechSnap program. But nevertheless, we're interested in them. We think you'll be interested in them. So let's get started. First up, why use Postgres? Updated for the last five years. So this is an interesting one. I mean, it obviously seems right up your alley, Mr. Dan. 
it looks like they've compiled kind of a long, you know, like an updated history of the things that why why Postgres has been useful to to Mr. Craig Kernstein over the years. What did you think of this? Is it kind of jive with the reasons you use it, or were there items here that you know kind of surprised you? Um, no, most of the stuff I've heard heard of before, but this is the stuff that's come in in particular in the past five years since he wrote his previous blog post that got some good attention way back when. Um, now, the stuff that's come out recently that will appeal to a lot of people is JSON support. And um, that's very useful for people who like NoSQL but don't want to use NoSQL. And right, they've some heard of the, bad things about Mongo when they ran away, ran away screaming. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And foreign data wrappers... Basically, you can map an external data system to tables directly in Postgres. So you can write some sort of, um, you, you can actually write the queries that will go out and query data that is external to Postgres. But your SQL queries don't know any different. They don't know that you're actually going outside of Postgres. So you can, the, the options there are endless. You, you can query into another database server, basically, and just write the foreign data wrappers that you need to do that. It's just so wow. cool. Just, I've never I've actually used that. That sounds pretty pretty useful, though. Yeah, it can be a file. It can be, you know, it could go out on the internet and check the status of something somewhere else. Uh, it can query anything you want. If you can write the code, you can do it. Um, but yeah, at, at the risk of pissing off all the people that love MySQL, the, the, this has a lot of good information on it. Excellent. Yeah. So uh, you guys should check that out and maybe give us some feedback about the things that you agreed with, disagreed with, or, hey, maybe there's some reasons to use Postgres that weren't mentioned in this guide. I'd like to hear about those too. So this next one, it's a little self-referential. I guess maybe there should be like a caveat there, but uh, I thought this was interesting. It's forcing password gropers through a smaller hole with OpenBSD's PFQs. So this is something we, we don't talk about OpenBSD very often on this show, uh, not for any particular reason. It just doesn't come up that much. No, uh, but no. it's, a, it's a fascinating distribution, and obviously they're the people that created PF, which we do talk about quite a bit. So tell us more. And, and when I grabbed this one, I did not notice that he was quoting. <laughs> he, he's quoting one of my tweets. That you know, um, actually, I didn't notice that either when I first saw the story. So, but I know Peter. I've known him for a number of years. He he's been running a. Uh, a PF tutorial at BSD CAN for many years, and every year there's lots of people in there learning more about PF. And if you don't know what PF is, it's a packet filter native to OpenBSD, and it, it has really rich features. And the the fe- feature in particular to the, that he wants to take advantage of here is a bandwidth feature where you can put people into a queue. So um, this I first became familiar with PF's ability to queue stuff or, or to to trap spammers um, was with uh, gray listing. Basically, if you've never talked to this server before, if the, this IP address has never talked to this mail server before, it diverts you to another queue, which talks very slowly, like one character a second. And a lot of spam tools will not wait that long. They will say, "Oh, I don't have a connection," and go away and try another delivery. Whereas proper S- proper SM 
TP daemons will actually wait for this stuff to come in. Um, and if you wait long enough, you get whitelisted and you try again and you, you come in straight. So that, that's how OpenBSC does a gray listing. And I like it. And I wanted something that would stop these people that pound and pound and pound on fresh ports, downloading all this crap that they don't really need and, and which I asked them not to download with robots.txt. And I want to divert these guys over into something very slow. I don't want to block them because then they'll realize and say, oh, I should go. I should use another IP address. Get them really slow, very slow loading, so it doesn't overload my server. Yeah, so that's where this came about, and I'm thinking of using the same approach so that if fail to ban detects that someone is is downloading like 500k in the past 1.5 seconds, I'll say, oh no, that's too fast. Just slow down and take your time. Ooh, most, I like most, the idea of combining it with uh, with fail to ban there. That seems like a great idea. Yep. And most very good spiders take their time. They pace it. They, they have many different spiders fetching, but it's all evenly spaced out. It's not like you're going to get, oh, give me these 1,000 URLs right now, please, in the next three seconds. That's, that's v- not playing well with others. Right. Potentially malicious behavior. Yes. Some people say, oh, no, your server should be able to handle that. Not if the spike that you look at on the graph, the traffic's like this and you're like that. Sorry. Right. And, I mean, you know, there's like an interest incentive too. It's like, well, okay, maybe it should, but is that just for you? How much How much money do you want me to, you know, resources are finite, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And if you clearly, mm-hmm. if you're trying to go to my server, then you value the things I'm trying to serve to you. So please kind of just play nicely. If not... Mm-hmm. I will make you. I will make you play nice. That syntax looks really nice. I mean, I've always enjoyed PF syntax. You know, it's it's usually pretty easy mm-hmm. to to grok. Uh, oh that yes. looks, that looks pretty easy. I mean, I'm I haven't used PF on the command line for probably a couple of years, but even then, it was like, okay, yeah, I think I could pick this up in you know not too long. So worth a shot. Let us know, uh, audience members, if you guys use this or if you have other any other uh, interesting traffic tips like that. Right. I think that's a common problem people run into. Yeah, I'll be looking at this after BSD can because I really don't have the time now. <laughs> right. But yeah, Peter Peter's good. When is BSD can? Uh, I guess I could answer that myself, couldn't I? I, I know when PG con is. BSD can is June seventh to tenth of um, June. Nice. June seventh to twelfth of June in Ottawa. There, we Alan go. will be there. I'll be there. Sounds like a thing not to miss, everyone. Don't miss it. So speaking of things that we won't miss, this brings us to our final roundup item of the day. And hey, today's roundup has actually been surprisingly positive. And let's end on another positive note. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. NSA has halted their collection of Americans' emails about foreign targets. Y- y- your first question should be, why were they gathering them in the first place? Well, they thought they could because they were emailing someone else. But that's not very good. It's not very nice. Stop gathering our emails. You don't need them. Right. And so like uh, some people, especially like Senator Ron Wyden or others, you know, really felt that this kind of amounted to a runaround around the Fourth Amendment, you know, where it's like, well, you really, really shouldn't be doing this. But, you know, there was enough of a purview that there it was claimed that, well, yes, it basically amounted that they were, you know, they were searching for emails and texts sent by Americans to foreign individuals uh, and then 
grokking, you know, trying to search through those to find certain mm-hmm. words that were suspicious. They are no longer doing that. Um, yeah, it, it does feel, it, it does, it's, it's nice, right? Like it's a little bit more reasonable now to think I'm an American. You're not supposed to be spying on me in this way. Please just stop. Sure. You know, if you want to go collect surveillance against two foreign nationals, that's part of your, your charter and job. I'm not saying that, you know, I don't, whether I want that or not. Okay. But it really didn't feel right. I always felt that, you know, about the the way they were doing this. So this can bring it into a line, you know, hopefully we can feel a little bit better about the things that our government is doing to nominally protect us. And like, that's important. We need national security. We need, you know, we need to do stop the threats that are real in this world, but not at the cost of privacy and, you know, our central liberties. I'd like to know if they've gotten rid of the data they collected. Right. That's also a very good question. They have those crazy warehouses. You know, they have so much data. Data, data it's everywhere. Not, it was not mentioned here. Oh, IRC room, WW. Why sniff email when they can just work with Intel? That really brings it full circle. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I imagine we will see that, you know, for things, for cases like this, there are other avenues that they can explore. Um all right. Well, I guess that's the end of the roundup today. Kind of a short roundup, but heavy hitting. Anything else you'd like to send people to, direct them to, or just uh, comment on today? No. Check your backups. Make sure you get your yeah. keys. Yeah. Oh, that's a that's a great one. I think you should you should all definitely do that. Don't run into the mistake that your friend did. That's that's just terrible. Test the restore. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, well, with that, that wraps up episode 317 of this here TechSnap program. If you liked it, head on over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. There you can find our archives, the previous generation's archives, and a whole bunch of other awesome shows. Go check out Ask Noah. It's, like, brand new. You can get in on the early days, watch its evolution. I'm having a lot of fun with it. Coming up next week, Linux Fest Northwest up in Bellingham, Washington. Uh, it's next Friday and Saturday. If you uh, watch this by then, come check it out. The whole a bunch of the JB crew will be there. It's going to be a ton of fun. And they'll be broadcasting the final Linux action show live from the event. Go check that out. It will surely be the end of an era, a piece of history, and something not to miss. If you'd like to hear more from us or give us your feedback, go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact or techsnap.reddit.com or I am at Wes Payne on Twitter. He is at techsnap underscore Dan. I think that wraps it up today. Thank you very much for joining us and we'll see you next week. Next week.